Okay, we continue our study, new members class of the Book of Church Order. We'll finish the portion before the confession and then take up the confession, Lord willing, next week. Um, first section that we look at is the directory for examination, section G. Section 1 concerns the examination for the ordination of elders. And then <clears throat> first it talks about in the preface what a man is to do who desires to be ordained as an elder. <clears throat> There's a checklist, and this is printed here starting on page 99, of what exactly they need to go through, a man would need to go through, uh, before he would be considered to be examined. And then um, a lot of things related to his specific Christian experience, his conversion, but also if he's married, they will talk, the Presbytery will talk to his wife. To figure out, so a preliminary step is she gives a testimony in writing. Um, he also has to have letters of reference concerning his Christian character, his parental control over his household, uh, any public sins, whether if he's divorced, an explanation as to why and what happened, any kind of debt he has, and then information about his baptism, etc., uh, also, he has to express any concerns, disagreements, or questions he has about our standards or the Book of Church Order, and he has to agree only to carry on any disputes about those matters in the appropriate courts of the Church. His examinations have to be passed. At least two-thirds of the questions that are listed in here have to be asked of him, and also he has to pass at least an 80% on those. Then we have the listing of the Old Testament examination. Now I will say that my exams were a little more detailed than this. Uh, for example, I was required to give an outline of every book by chapter, not every single chapter in the Old Testament, but chapters 1 through X are about this. Chapters you know, 4 through 7, 8 through 10. I had to give that for all Old Testament books until I got to the Minor Prophets, after which I was given the leave because I had done well on the rest from Genesis up till uh, Ezekiel. They let me take three books of my choice out of the 12. But I had to go through and outline each one. And then I'll also answer questions like this. So I think mine was a concurrent uh, academic exam for uh, Master of Divinity while, and also for Pastoral Licensure. But in any case, lots of questions here. And these are intended to dig down into a man's understanding of Scripture, theology, apologetics, church government, etc. So Genesis, what are the doctrines? What is the structure? Typology, six-day creation, the doctrine of covenant and other doctrines. Then Exodus. So start in order with Genesis, then go to Exodus. What's the significance of the law, the structure of the book, the tabernacle? How does that law relate to the covenant of grace? What's the central me message of Leviticus? What's the significance of the wanderings and numbers and the numbering of the people of Israel? Uh, Deuteronomy, the name of the book. What does it mean? What's the theme? What is the outline of the book? What is the significance of the law given in Deuteronomy as well as the doctrine of covenant in the book of Deuteronomy? It goes on, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, the purpose of the poetic books. So that's kind of a general for Job, <laughs> Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. What's the purpose of those? Um, some things about Job's life, the Psalms themselves, the five, five main groupings, some of the major doctrines in the Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the general purpose of it, questions on the major, major and minor prophets, and then more theological questions about the Old Testament as a whole concerning various doctrines as they're developed <clears throat> in the Old Testament. Any questions about any of those so far? One not particular to what was covered, but were you allowed to have your reference material with you, or was it all? It was all in my head. No reference material. So it was um, very difficult. No. No, I had to be able to recall. They take it very seriously. And if you've ever been to other denominations' examination of their students, it's... uh, featherweight compared to what we would do. We're very serious about making sure that our elders are learned, that they understand the scriptures, that they can handle them skillfully. We don't require perfection. We recognize not every man's going to know all the stuff. And there would be many questions where, well, I'd say a, a substantial handful of questions where I would say, I don't know. And they would just move on because they only have to cover a certain percentage of the questions in order to sustain you on your exam. But I will say that my Old Testament exam probably took, oh, I think it was the whole morning session, so it probably was about four or five hours with my Old Testament exam, and then another five or six hours for New Testament. So it's it's very substantial, like very in-depth, lots of questions. And I think it's good because it... Um, discourages men who aren't really serious and requires you to know the Word of God. But yeah, it's got to be in your head. And they might prompt you to kind of jog your memory, but no, they you, you got to know what you're doing. Okay, and then the New Testament. Talking about the terms covenant versus testament, which God willing will look at... Um, Galatians 3, this coming Sabbath, which touches on that very point. Covenant versus Testament, a comparison between the Old Testament and New Testament. Our Lord's purpose in using the Old Testament scriptures. What charges were made against Christ and against his disciples in the New Testament. What languages were used in the New Testament. What can we learn about the religion and philosophy of the Greek world within the New Testament. Questions about the government of Judea. Um, at the time of the church's founding, the citations of scripture in the New Testament from the Old Testament, what were the promises given to Abraham and what was their substance, Um, what is the word synoptic gospels refer to, that word synoptic, what was the original audience, the purpose of the book, and the content of each book, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Now this is where my exam got a little more detailed I had to give a chapter-by-chapter outline of every book in the New Testament until we got to... So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the Gospels. I remember doing Hebrews, getting up to Hebrews, and I think they may have 
I got up far enough through Paul's epistles, Romans, Colossians, I remember doing, that at a certain point they let me pick a couple of books. A couple shorter, a couple larger books. But that was like where I had to have help. Because especially, I started getting weak around the Gospel of John. Didn't remember what happened in chapter 12, I seem to recall. So they would prompt me or I'd say, I don't know. But it was basically chapter by chapter. So this is actually, I would say, probably something that would be a bare bones minimum that would be used. And then there would be higher levels depending on what your function is going to be and whether it's concurrently academic as well as um, presbyterial, as in my case. But in any case, questions about the various books, who wrote the book of Acts, what were the predictions Christ made about his resurrection, and how did his, how did his uh, disciples receive those predictions. Uh, within the book of Acts, about the deacons, the choosing of them, Cornelius' conversion, and the theology that flows from that, which we'll also look at in Galatians 3. Uh, Romans, summary of the major doctrines. What does it teach on justification, divine sovereignty, sanctification, the Jews? First and Second Corinthians, what are the problems in the Corinthian church? How were they addressed? Give an outline of Second Corinthians. Galatians, what is the law as used in the book of Galatians and the importance of it? Um, why does the law not conflict with God's covenants of promise? <clears throat> Ephesians, a brief outline, uh, chapters 2 and 3, what is their teaching about the body of Christ as it relates to the Lord Jesus, and then summaries of Paul's epistles with salient or main points discussed in each one, same with the Catholic epistles, uh, basic teachings, and then Revelation, there's a little more detailed discussion because of some of the controverted issues there purpose of the book, theme of the book, what does the word angel mean in the context of the seven churches, what's the significance of the thousand years in Revelation 20, which very interesting, um, when you note the progress of evil in the book of Revelation, just something to think about, it's always broken numbers, it's always halves, seven is generally like a full number in the Bible, like the fullness of a week. So it's three and a half is the number of the progress of evil. Ten is often given in scripture as a number of fullness or completion of things as well as seven. And thousand years is ten times ten times ten. So it's like a threefold fullness, in other words. So in terms of the thousand years, um, Revelation is a symbolic book throughout. You wouldn't expect it to break out into a literal description in the middle of all these figures of speech, especially when you compare the other number number usage throughout the various parts, whether the evil or the good, there's always these um, numbers that have significance, either the fullness of evil as the ten horns, or the fullness of blessing as in the ten times ten times ten, the threefold ten in the thousand years, or the three and a half years, three years, three times and half a time. That's half a seven. It's broken off in the midst of it because of the progress of evil in that sense. In any case, same with the number of days that adds up to a broken period of time, not getting you all the way to a completion. So, different discussions about various theological terms used in the New Testament, like, for example, 
the usage of the term church in the New Testament. So not about a particular book, but just more general themes. Uh, what about the covenant of grace? How is it demonstrated throughout the New Testament? And then next, before I move on, any questions about the New Testament exam? No? Okay. So next were the theological examinations. <clears throat> the first one concerns hermeneutics. Uh, Hermes is the messenger of the gods, and the verb hermenizo was to deliver a message or to make a message clear or to interpret something. Um, so hermeneutics is the science of interpretation or making things clear. Uh, there are, in the New Testament, it's often used with Aramaic words or Hebrew words, and then you'll read it, it says, which being interpreted says this. That's the verb for hermeneutics, hermeneuo. So hermeneutics, we talk about allegorical interpretation, what gave rise to it, and why is it faulty. Talk about the term regula fide, which means uh, the rule of faith, and that is the doctrines of our religion as opposed to a strictly textual deliverance of a message. There's also the doctrinal deliverance of the scripture as a whole. So that's we'll talk about this in a little bit, but what is meant by that term, the rule of faith. We talked about, uh, in our exams, we talked about the Middle Ages, how interpretation was done, tradition that was handed down, human tradition merely, um, as opposed to the authority of Scripture. So go through that. And then the relationship of dogmatics or the theological propositions and exegesis. So exegesis was basically swallowed up under dogmatics in the Middle Ages, which means that the text wasn't given proper consideration. It was merely used as a pretext to teach specific ideas. So the grand idea overtook the facts of the text. And the Reformation, one of the goals was to shift that emphasis not to the exclusion of dogmatics or doctrines, but to ensure that our doctrines are tied and anchored in the text so that the text provides us with the truth that we formulate doctrines based off of, as opposed to our doctrines independently existing because we've received them from ecclesiastical authority. And then we look at the text, if we look at it at all, through the lens of our preconceived notions. That is uh, disrespecting God speaking in Scripture. So we must start with God speaking in Scripture and then draw out of that, that's what exegesis means, to draw out or to lead out, to bring out the meaning of God as he's delivered it in the text. And so that's a shift in the Reformation period, especially in the doctrine of hermeneutics. Verbal and plenary inspiration. Verbal means that the God-breathed character of the Bible extends to all the words and the significance of those words and the sentence structure and the verb tense and the case of the nouns. Plenary means it doesn't just extend to some words in the scriptures, it extends to all the words. Plenary is the fullness Every part of scripture is inspired by God. So that's the idea of verbal plenary inspiration. 
Some people say the nice ideas of Scripture are inspired, but the facts of Scripture are not. The facts can be mistaken, but the nice ideas can't. This is the Hegelians, again, with their nice ideas. Looking at the Bible through the lens of their nice idea, they say, I believe in doctrinal inspiration of Scripture. Well, then you don't believe it's the Word of God. Okay, um, the phrase scriptura, scripturae interprens means, or scripturae scriptura interprens means that the fullness of Scripture on any given point interprets particular texts. So we interpret Scripture in the light of Scripture. So if we have a text of Scripture that talks about Christ being less than the Father, the Father is greater than I, he says, we don't take that text, the singular text, and say, that's the rule by which we'll interpret all other texts. What we do is we say, well, what's the general thrust of various passages that talk about the relationship between Christ and the Father? And then you have to draw out logically, well, what can that include or exclude? Here he says he's equal with the Father. Here it says that he's co-eternal. Here it says he created the world. Here it says he forgives sins. These are all attributes of God, fully God. And we know that scripture says no one can forgive sins but God. That God will not share his glory with another. That he alone created the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth. Okay. So therefore we don't take that singular text, scriptura, out of the context of scripturae, or this plurality of scriptures that deal with that topic. So we say that the fullness of the scripture on any given point will interpret any particular passage. So we use them to interpret in that way. The clearer passages we use to interpret the less clear. The didactic, plain statements of scripture we use to interpret the symbolic. We don't take the symbolic and make them the rule for interpreting the plain. For example, uh, it says that God repented. That's a symbolic phrase. Because we see a didactic phrase, God doesn't repent. He's not. He can't repent. Okay, so which one is it? Well, we take the symbolic and we interpret it in the light of the plain statement. And, and it's very clear in virtually every instance when the scripture is using symbolic language. And there may be dispute over certain passages, but those are very limited. It's generally easily discernible by the face of the text. <clears throat> and that's another way that we use the fullness of Scripture to interpret particular passages. All right, so then the, the effect of the Reformation upon the post-Reformation church is to force people to deal with the text. That's the main thing. And then the historico-grammatical method of interpretation means we take the words as they're used in the historical context of that day, we don't take them and say, what do they mean today? We say, what did they mean then? That's historical. We don't, you know, the idea of the church. What is the church? Well, we look at, well, how is it used at that time? How is it used in the context of the apostles' writings or the Old Testament and the prophets? We don't impose, I have an idea of what a church is. It's da 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 No, that's not historical. That's an imposition. Same thing with Psalms, you know. Psalms, hymns, and songs. See, it says hymns, therefore we can sing Isaac Watts. Well, is that what they meant at that time? No, that's not what they meant. There was no Isaac Watts. There was no office of hymn writer. There was no command to write hymns. So we say that's not, not historical. And then grammatical meaning, 
what's the subject of the sentence, what's the verb, what's the direct object, what are the noun cases, what are the verb tenses, you know, what are the types of verbs are we using, um, are we exhorting people, or is it making a plain statement, an indicative, is it a command, an imperative, or a prohibition? So there are actual rules of grammar, and the job of interpretation starts with understanding the historical context and the usage of words, and then the grammatical context of structures of sentences, paragraphs, etc. And that's how we interpret the Bible. Then we had to answer on inspiration, objections to divine inspiration of the scripture, and then why is it essential? We don't allow men to come in who don't believe that all the Bible is inspired by God, every part. <clears throat> we say it's essential, but we ask, why do you think it's essential? And then the unity and diversity of the Bible. There's one message, it's one God, one Holy Spirit, but a diversity of circumstances, times, and occasions on which the scripture text was written. Okay, and then other questions about the interpretation, historical interpretation of the Bible, getting it in the historical context, theological interpretation, what is the theology that comes out of the texts as we read them through, um, prophecy, principles for interpreting prophecy, don't... Again, don't take everything that's symbolic and say that it overrides literal. Understand when they're speaking literally and when they're speaking figuratively or attempt to do so. Um, also, recognizing that many of the promises or threats of the prophets are conditional. There's an implied condition in most every case. Sometimes unconditional promises come forth. God's going to do this in the future. You know, he'll be born in this place, Christwood, or things of that nature. There's no human element. But often there is. If you don't repent, this will this bad thing will happen to you. Or if you believe my promises, these good things will occur. Okay, so those are principles of interpreting prophecy and then psalms and things of that nature. Then the theology exams. Um, general and special revelation. And how do those two interact? General meaning God revealing himself in creation and the conscience and the nature of man and the law written on the heart and the function of reason. These are all general revelation principles. And the Bible doesn't make any sense without that, actually. The Bible starts with language. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first sentence in the Bible. If language is gibberish... And I could say dog, 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 and it means the same thing as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then there's no point in writing a book. Might as well show a movie or have, you know, hieroglyphics or something, pictures. But because man is created in the image of God, in general revelation, we know that man has the capacity for language, he has the capacity for moral judgment, he has the capacity for rationality and defining and... Um, not defining, you know, this is A, and it's not. it can't be A and non-A in the same way at the same time. For example, the law of contradiction that's built into human nature, so that if God says in the beginning, it doesn't mean at the end. Okay, it can't be A and non-A at the same time in the same way. This is the law of identity. A thing is itself. If we don't have that, we can't understand anything. Um, and so, basically, the relationship between the two is that general revelation is the foundation on which special revelation takes place. Just like the, I've talked about 
uh, grace perfects nature recently. It's the same idea. Nature is general revelation. Grace is special, special revelation. Okay, but special revelation is necessary because man cannot be saved by the light of nature. Scripture is sufficient. The scripture is inerrant. Talk about three views of inspiration, mechanical, dynamic, and organic. Talk about the word inerrancy, that the Bible cannot err, and it did not err. Infallibility is it cannot, inerrancy is it did not. And then why people, some people reject the doctrine of inerrancy. Even people who say they believe the Bible's infallible don't believe it's inerrant. That's called neo-orthodoxy. If something cannot be mistaken, how can it have a mistake? Okay? So if you believe in infallibility, you must believe in inerrancy. But there are these idiots who say, Oh, I believe the Bible's infallible, but it's got some mistakes. Okay, well, which is it? It either can't make mistakes or it can. If it's fallible, then it has errors. It's errant, or at least it could be errant. But if it's infallible, it cannot be errant at all. Everything has to be correct. Everything has to be true. In any case, we have to explain that and walk through that. Um, The names of God, the incomprehensibility of God, the theistic proofs or proofs we make to unbelievers as to the existence of God. Uh, the sources and methods of determining God's attributes throughout Scripture. Um, what do we mean by the incommunicable attributes? Communicable means God can give it to someone else. Incommunicable means he cannot give it to someone else. So God's wisdom, he says men can be wise, because they're created in his image. He said that men are spirits, angels are also spirits. And therefore, there are communicable attributes. God's spirituality, God's knowledge, God's wisdom, God's truth, his goodness, his holiness. God says that his people can be holy as he is holy. Not in the same degree or extent, but in the same kind. The holiness of God. And so there are these attributes God has chosen to communicate, and there are others that cannot be communicated. They're what make him uniquely God. And if he gave them to somebody else, Like if he gave his glory to some other, then they would be God. And that's not possible. There can't be two gods. Okay. So then, uh, more questions about the source of theology. What is election? What is reprobation? The doctrine of creation, the works of God, the origin of sin. How does evolution see man's origin? The image of God, what is it? Do you believe that man is made up of two parts, dichotomy, or three parts, trichotomy? Uh, I happen to be a dichotomist. I believe man is the body and the spirit, and that's it. Those are the two parts. Some people believe man is body, soul, and spirit. And they see those terms in Scripture and say, well, it has to be three. Rather than seeing that Scripture often uses multiple terms for one thing. That's how I see it. But in any case, that's not a doctrine we uh, separate fellowship over. Just a difference of opinion. Talk about the transmission of sin, the punishment of sin. What is the covenant? What do we mean by that? What's the covenant of redemption? What's the covenant of grace? What are the dispensations of the covenant of grace? The essential nature of Christ, his two natures, the two states of Christ, his three offices and their execution. What is the nature and extent of the atonement? What are the operations of the Holy Spirit and the effectual call? So these are all various doctrines of theology that our elders as well as deacons are examined about. Then we get into ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. 
and the sacraments are the means of grace attached to the Word of God. We talk about the church, what are its powers, authority, what is its mission, what are the offices, what are its sacraments, and what is its discipline. Have to compare and understand other forms of church government. Where do they derive their authority from? What are the differences among them? Um, what are the means of grace? What is a sacrament? Various questions concerning the government of the church. And then also, there are several questions related to our book of church order, just to make sure that if a man's coming to be ordained, he needs to understand what his duties are, what the duties of others are. So if someone wants to file a complaint against him, he can help that person file the complaint because he knows, oh yeah, well you have a right to file a complaint against me. Here's the paperwork we'll do and here's the people we turn it into. That kind of thing. All right, apologetics, which means like when you apologize, you defend yourself. So apologetics is a defense of the Christian religion against those who do not agree. So apologetics deals with questions like, what is the foundation of a Christian philosophy? How do you build a Christian philosophy? Is it legitimate to have a Christian philosophy? Or is that some kind of wicked, horrible thing that you ought not to do? So this is section G15. Um, actually, before I move on, any questions about the prior sections? Casey, did you have anything? No? Okay. So apologetics dealing with a Christian philosophy, whether there can be neutrality, what is epistemology? Now, <clears throat> epi is the preposition for on top of or upon, and stema is standing. So epistemology means what do you stand on? What is your solid ground for your thinking? And many people don't ever ask themselves that question. How do I know that I know true things? Many people will take for granted large portions of their knowledge without ever realizing, well, how do you know that? How can you be certain that what you believe is true? Now, for Christian epistemology, we believe that there is an infallible and omniscient source of knowledge. That's our epistemology. And that that infallible, uh, unerring source of knowledge that knows everything has spoken in a way that humans can understand. That's the foundation of Christian, Christian epistemology. God has spoken... And he has spoken in the revelation in nature by creating us in his image so that we can understand his revelation in scripture. God made us in his image so that we could receive information from him and we could be able to have a community. We have the communicable attribute of wisdom and knowledge. And so God can tell us things. Now, modern man has no epistemological certainty. This is actually... One of the points we have to engage with unbelievers in. They have no certainty of knowledge. They have no place to stand on. Because they're like a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. And he thinks that that foundation will stand. No, it's going to fall. So he thinks that he can have knowledge about things. But he doesn't have a source of information beyond himself or other humans and their opinions. Now, are humans infallible? No. 
That's obvious. Do humans know everything? No. So if you base your knowledge off of fallible and finite creatures, do you actually know anything? No, you don't. Not with any level of certainty. Now, people, because they're created in the image of God, they will take for granted the capacity of their mind to think. They will take for granted that the memories they have of prior experiences are actually correct. That they had an experience where they touched uh, a stove and it burned their hand. And sensory perception went to their brain that said, ouch, that hurts. And so they'll reason that they should not do that a second time. So they take all those things for granted. But they don't actually have any certainty in their knowledge because they have fallible and finite sources of information, namely their own experience, which is finite and fallible. For example, do your senses work? How do you know? I could hear you right now. Well, did you hear everything I said? Yeah. How can you be sure? Because you're asking me to verify it. Okay, but have you ever heard somebody and you're sure that you heard them and you were wrong? Yeah. So your senses are fallible. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're always going to mislead you, but it does mean you cannot rely upon them. What is science built on? Observation. Observation, the scientific method, the reliance on your experience, which is fallible and which is finite and which obviously is not always correct. Think about the settled science of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 200 years ago even. Settled science is a moving target. Therefore, science provides you no certainty of knowledge. So this is, this is the idea of apologetics. Epistemology is the basic science of philosophy, but nobody wants to study it because they realize rather rapidly that philosophy on a humanist basis leads to pessimism, it leads to uncertainty, and it leads to suicide. So people would rather forget about epistemology, let's just be entertained. And that's where modern man has come. There is no truth because they don't have a ground to stand on. So we have rationalism, what is it? Empiricism, what is it? Irrationalism, what is that? Pragmatism, what is that? Existentialism, what is that? Humanism, what is that? These are various godless philosophies. Um, and then we were asked to construct a biblical philosophy of history, develop a biblical philosophy for civil government. What does it mean to know things analogically, univocally, or equivocally? Do you know things that are like the truth? That's analogical knowledge. Do you know things that are the truth? That's univocal knowledge. And do you know things that are lies? That's equivocal knowledge. Now, there are people who pretend to be Reformed Christians who don't believe that you can actually have any knowledge that's identical with the mind of God. Not on every point, but at any particular point, your knowledge is so different that you can't. They're basically denying communicable attributes of wisdom and knowledge and saying everything we know is like what God knows, but, you know, after all, we don't really have the truth, which is ultimately skepticism. And then once they get into skepticism, then they go to Rome, because Rome says, I have certainty. Trust in my whatever, my history. 
So it's a, it's a slippery slope. Once you start accepting analogical knowledge, it leads to unbelief and atheism, really. Okay, so then we talk about the systems of evidential apologetics as opposed to presuppositional apologetics. Uh, I happen to believe both have their uses and neither of them is uh, fully airtight. And then why would we reject or accept evidential apologetics? What is truth? What is the relationship between logic and truth? And how many sources of truth are there? And then develop a biblical view of economics and culture. So we are required to explain what is a biblical view of economics and culture. Now logic is the form of thinking. It's thinking as God thinks. Truth is the value that specific propositions have. Does it have truth value? The thing that is said, does it hold true in all circumstances? Is this universally true because if it's not that's not actually truth okay and then church history any questions though about uh, apologetics before we get into the church history section no okay church history this was um, this is one of my favorite exams actually and i did pretty well on it but get into the history of judaism especially Hellenistic, which influences the New Testament, which quotes from the Septuagint, for example. Um, the Greek and Roman cultures, how they affected the spread of the gospel. Who were the apostolic fathers? And I was asked, I think, to give, what was it? So apostolic, apologetics, various early church heresies, and then give me three major Eastern, three major Western fathers, talk about who they were, and then go into the church councils, what were the early church councils dealing with? What did they deliberate on? What did they come up with? Um, how did the Episcopal form of church government take precedence over the Presbyterial form? What's really interesting is if you read the church fathers before Ignatius, so it's like middle of the second century, all of them identify the bishop with the presbyter. They, they use them interchangeably. A bishop is a presbyter, a presbyter is a bishop to them. Um, by the time you get to middle of the third century, they have basically a division between presbyter and bishop. And then eventually you get to archbishops. And then you get into metropolitan bishops. And then you get into the pope. So it's kind of like steps upward toward the throne of the Antichrist, where little by little they begin to dominate over others. So church history, we deal with that. Roman persecutions time of the Reformation, how Europe was prepared for the work of Reformation, who, who were the Reformers, major differences between Luther and Zwingli, um, monasticism and the history of it, the Crusades, the printing press, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the Diet of Worms, Calvin in Geneva, who were the Anabaptists, um, Scotland, what was the Reformation like in Scotland and England, and then getting into the Counter-Reformation, the Council of Trent, the rise of the Puritans, the, uh, the Synod of Dort, Westminster Assembly, Great Awakening, and then the creep of liberalism into Christianity in the 20th century, and then a, a brief outline of Presbyterian church history. So that was the church history exam. Any questions on that? No? Okay. And then section G17, the practical theology examination. So getting into things like missions, 
the spread of of the early church via missions, spread of the Reformation church, Puritan view of missions, the father of modern missions, which is William Carey, in many people's opinion, biblical evangelism, what is discipleship, as opposed to, or are they the same thing? Is evangelism and discipleship the same thing? If not, what are the differences? Four major cults in the world today, uh, five major world religions, and why we reject them. What is homiletics, which is the uh, doctrine of preaching? How should preaching be done? How? What is the importance of it? What is its place in the church? What type of preaching is considered biblical preaching? Uh, our view is that preaching should be expository and applicable. So the expository part is where the grammatical part, you open up the text to explain what it means, and then the applicable part is where what you've brought out of the text, that's that's the first step. The second step is what duty does God require based off of what that text says. So that's what we believe is the biblical model of preaching is expository and applicable. Some people focus on, well, I just want to give application. They don't want to deal too much in the text. Then people have applications. It's more like a pragmatic moralism. I just want something to do. Just give me, you know, 12 steps to improve my life. I want some application. And then other people just want to do the exegesis. There are people who believe that you shouldn't even apply the text. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And if the preacher does that, he's sinning. And that's the redemptive historical model. Just open the text. Game over once you open the text. And that leaves people with, uh, I would say, uh, half of the sermon. You just learned, what am I to believe concerning God? But the scriptures principally teach also what duty God requires of me. So preaching should reflect the text of scripture. It should give you both. And so we believe that. Okay, and then the requirements for pastors. Why do we not allow women to preach or hold office in the church? What is the biblical responsibility of a pastor toward their their church and the broader community? What are the functions of the office of a minister? What is nuthetic counseling? Nutheo means to put something in a person's mind, and it refers to uh, confrontation, if necessary, or exhortation from Scripture, as opposed to going to the wicked who don't know anything. Remember we were talking about epistemology? They have nothing to stand on, and they've built these whole structures of how to understand the soul of man. That's what psychology means, the soul of man, the study of his soul. You're going to tell me I should go to people who don't know anything and ask them, How to fix the soul of man when God has infallibly spoken about how to fix the soul of man. And most Christians say, yeah, that's right. Let's go to the the fallible, sinful perverts who hate God and let's ask them how to fix the soul. Oh, you know, scripture is nice for Jesus and being saved, but we really need psychology to fix ourselves. When you put it in that light, it's kind of I'm representing their position as I see it. Not as they see it. They would see it as, oh, well, the Bible doesn't tell us how to do math. Therefore, it doesn't tell us how to fix the soul. I'm sorry, that's not correct. So we believe in nuthetic counseling that the Bible has answers on fixing the soul. That it actually teaches you how to disciple a person and to change their soul for the glory of God. Okay, so um, talk about the... Problems with modern psychology. 
and then the usage of scripture in counseling, the two great revivals in history, circumstances around those revivals, what type of music should the church use, and that is uh, like a cappella versus organs. You know, some people use organs or whatever. So it's a discussion of church music. And then it should say regulative principle of worship. I need to talk to our guy who keeps this document and tell him that. But um, develop a Christian view of education. Uh, should Chris, Christians be involved in civil government? Why or why not? So these are all very practical questions that we're required to answer should we desire to be licensed by the RPCGA as an elder. And then section two deals with licensing for examination for one who wants to preach the gospel. This is a man who's being trained for a seminary degree. He's not completed with it, but he wants to be able to preach. We do have a method to get him licensed. So there's a checklist that he fills out, much like for the elder from section G1 uh, and following. And then he has a theological examination. He doesn't undergo all the exams, but he does undergo theological examination. All right, deacons also. There's a deacons checklist, very similar to the elders. that basically use the same thing. And then their theological examination is much like the licentiate. So often... A man will be a deacon as well as a licentiate. I have a friend down in Texas who's both because the exams are the same. Okay, so that's section three. And then section four discusses the parameters uh, for subscription. Um, if a man comes in, he can be provisionally licensed as an elder. If he wants to be licensed as an elder, he comes to us from another denomination. He would be provisionally licensed until he works out where he can be within our parameters, or he will not receive full licensure as an elder. He won't have permission to exercise the full extent. And I think the licensure for a provisional elder is something like yearly. In other words, you can't just be indefinitely. I believe that to be the case. I know the licensure for being licentiate to preach the gospel is annual, and I think it might also be for that, but I'm not sure. So we give there 14 different parameters. Some of them are things like, what are the acceptable views? And some of them are like, if you have this view, you can't be ordained within our denomination. So these are things that honest believers disagree about, and they are things that our confession of faith, in some instances, is intentionally vague about, because the confession gives us the scripture teaching without making specific points. So one example of that would be, do we believe that in the order of divine decrees, God decreed the fall first, and this is not an order of time of God's decrees because there is no order of time, but order of logical priority. Did God decree that man would fall first or that he'd be united to Christ first? Because the supralapsarian position is that the decree of God considers us who are elect in Christ and then the fall as a means to accomplish the end of our redemption. Whereas the infralapsarian says, no, God decreed all of us to be in Adam, and then everyone would fall, and then, logically, then God chose those to be in Christ. There are cases that could be made for either side. I don't want to get into that here. 
But it's an example of a doctrine where there were men who conscientiously disagreed with each other on that point. William Tweese was like the moderator of the Westminster Assembly. He was supralapsarian. Um, some of the Scottish divines were supralapsarian, but many of the English were infralapsarian. So it didn't, they didn't make a sticking point over it. They made it intentionally so that both sides could affirm the scriptural truth without committing to one side or the other. And so we recognize that, that there are matters that men disagree about, and we're not going to say you have to fall within except on certain points. For example, you have to acknowledge only one general bodily resurrection from the dead. Premillennials can't do that because they think there's a, gener- a, a resurrection before Christ returns or at his return, which they call his second return, pre-millennial. And then the millennium follows and then the general resurrection is after the millennium. So they have two resurrections, one before and one after the millennium because they literalize the thousand years. They literalize the first resurrection that describes those who reign during the thousand years. And so therefore, consequently, they have to have two bodily resurrections. We, we reject that. You cannot be premillennial and serve as a minister here. Okay, so those are the examinations. Any questions about the parameters or the examinations? All right, then the directory for church membership and Christian living. We talk in section one about the nature of the church and qualifications for church membership. The Church of Christ is the sole institution where those who profess to be Christians may come for preaching, teaching, and discipline. Now, the uh, older theologians had phrases that I think are useful. No man can have God for his father if he doesn't have the church as his mother. And the scriptures use that analogy, actually, that the church is like the wife or spouse of Christ and that she gives birth to her children. And it's through the word uh, sown in the hearts that it causes this regeneration or this new birth. So the church has the ordinances of Christ The church is under the headship of Christ. The church has the doctrine of Christ and the discipline of Christ. And therefore, if a person wants to say, well, I'm a Christian, but they don't have any interest in the church, then we would say, your profession of faith is hollow. Because, I mean, you may be ignorant and you need to be instructed, but after you've been instructed and you still say, nope, I want to do this on my own, then we would say, well, that person's profession of faith is not valid. So we talk about the nature of the church. It's the sole institution. Um, The church is bound to the scriptures themselves because the wife is bound to obey her husband. Therefore, when Christ speaks in the scriptures, the church, as the spouse of Christ, must listen to his orders. She cannot make up her own government of the house of of her husband. She has to be submitted. So the ultimate feminism is Roman Catholicism, where the spouse makes up the rules for the children rather than the husband making up the rules. You see that? The Pope is the head of the church on earth. He's like the head of the spouse. And therefore, he makes the rules for the kids. No. Christ is the head of the church. He makes the rules. The duty of the wife is to submit to her husband. There's not this egalitarian trash that people bring in, and that is lived out as a practical example among Christian people because they don't believe in the headship of Christ. Very sad. Okay, the third section there, H13, the purpose of church membership. Believers in this society of one another are bound together. Uh, Again, no true profession without church membership. 
It's an outward sign of that true profession. If we live outside of the church, we live as unbelievers. The church membership is a visible bond of our union with Christ. Remember, the body of Christ is the people of God joined together in the society of saints. So if the church is Christ's body, then we should unite to it as members of Christ. That's the basic idea. And this is true not just on a local scale. It's not like, you know, we're it and that's it. Nope. It's the whole body throughout the whole earth. There is a visible church that exists throughout the whole earth. Imperfect, yes, we all are, but still the visible church of Christ. There's also, if you look at another thing, another theme from Revelation is you have two women. There is Babylon, Mystery Babylon, who is riding on the beast. The beast represents everything that is earthly, generally represents the civil power, but in any case, that which is from below. The woman who professes to be the queen and is no widow, called Babylon, she is the false wife. She's the harlot. She pretends to be a wife, but she's not. And that doesn't just include certain... It's any church that professes to be the spouse of Christ, but lives in adultery. Those churches are part of Mystery Babylon. And then you have the other woman. You guys remember the other woman? She's like, by the end of the book, she's shining. She's radiant. She's spotless. She doesn't have any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The the dragon and the beast try to destroy her and God saves her. So there's there's a an attempt to destroy the true church by the false church and by the powers behind the false church, which is the beast and the dragon. And then you also have this Another symbol for the false church is the lamb with the the horns uh, of a or the tail of a dragon, I think, and and lamb's horns. So he kind of looks like he's a sheep, but he's actually a dragon. Same idea. Professes to be the people of Christ. So there is a true church throughout the whole world, and the goal of the Christian ministry until the second coming of Christ is to make the spouse of Christ more and more pure, leading more and more into holiness, so that there's a sanctification not just on an individual level, but worldwide throughout the whole church. And that is exactly why Christ appointed the means of grace, church discipline, and church government for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, till we all come to the fullness of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is Ephesians 4. That's the purpose for Christ ascending and giving gifts among men is to bring the people of God up to perfection. And that happens over time. And that's what Revelation is talking about. As the the whore gets worse and worse, it becomes more evident that she needs to be destroyed. As the pure spouse becomes more pure, it's evident that she's leading up to that final marriage supper, to the consummation of all things. And then you you have a lot of time spent in the book of Revelation on the destruction of the harlot. There's not a lot of time about the destruction of the beast or the false prophet. Yeah, they're destroyed. Okay, real quick. And then they dwell on this woman being destroyed. Because it's so important that the church of Christ be purified that the false church, tons of time is spent talking about her destruction. And all kinds of descriptions are given. Anyways, be that as it may, we talk about here the purpose of church membership is that visible bond of our union with our head Christ and with his saints worldwide. There are the requirements for communicate membership, credible profession of faith, suitable to a person's age requirement to read and be instructed in our standards in the book of church order 
an interview with the session covering any questions the person may have about this specific section, actually, about the uh, church membership and Christian living section, and then also about their rights as a member of the church. Section 2, H2, deals with the privileges of church members or church membership. We have um, right of vote by head of household, 18 years old and above, is considered a head of household. The Lord's Supper for those instructed and admitted by the session, especially those instructed in larger catechism 168 through 177, which we do that on a regular rotation going through those. Um, voting members can choose their rulers and deacons, subject to approval by the presbytery. All members have pastoral oversight from both ruling and teaching elders. All members have diaconal assistance. They have fellow watch care over one another, bearing one another's burdens, fellowship, prayers, and assistance. Church discipline to help them develop Christian character and conduct. And then due process in accordance with the book of church order. So we don't... I've heard of... I have people that I've known and myself who one day discipline shows up. But I have one friend who was, came into a meeting and he was being told that he was excommunicated. And that he was going to be excommunicated for a certain amount of time. It was like, where's my... You know, I'd never heard of this. Where's the accusation... Who are the witnesses? You know, do I have a right to defend myself? Nope. They just shipped him off and said, you're done. So we don't believe in that. We believe everybody has right of due process, etc. So those are the privileges of church membership. And then the duties of Christian living. Uh, we are required to not merely profess, but practice our faith among ourselves. All Christians are required to strive to perform these various duties as members of the church, daily study of God's word under the godly oversight of the session, daily growth in the kingdom of Christ as a testimony both to the church and to the world, a proper Christian attitude in exhibited, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we ought to live like it. So that's the idea there. And then actions honoring Christ with attitudes toward those who are outside of the church um, specifically civil magistrates, to be obedient and respectful, uh, still retaining our right of conscience, but recognizing generally we want to be respectful and obedient. We want to be above what their laws require of us. And then proper submission to church authorities, agreeing to follow the book of church order in matters of faith and practice. And don't take people to civil courts with ecclesiastical matters. Be respectful toward the church officers uh, and agreeing to meet with them if you're offended by them, and seeking reconciliation before leaving, maintaining the peace in the body by love, kindness, and gentleness, being of one mind, even the mind of Christ. And then maintaining the good name of other members, as you would like your good name to be maintained. This is a thing that destroys churches. When some members will, or one member will gossip about other people, they're not really thinking about, well, I ought to maintain my fellow members' good name. I ought not to gossip about them. If I have a problem with them, I should go to them and point it out. And the reason people usually don't do that, actually, is because it's bunk. Their charges are fake. They're taking offense where no offense is given, so they're ashamed to go to the person and say it, because then it'll appear how fake your offense is. You have no warrant to take offense at this person. So usually they'll go to other people and complain about it, and that's not good. Um, members also have a duty of examination before the Lord's table. 
to pray for their civil and ecclesiastical rulers, to hold personal and family worship times according to their, our directory for family worship. And then parents have a, a special duty to see that their children receive a Christian education and to do what lies within them to enlighten the understanding by teaching them the Word of God, correcting their temper, um, not just temper as in I throw a fit, and that's a temper, but temperament. You know, if someone is too soft-spoken, they need to be learn to speak louder. If someone is too timid, they need to l- learn to be more brave. If someone is overbold, they need to be more humble. Like temperament, meaning there's a fully developed Christian character. Many parents leave their kids exactly as their temperament was formed by their birth, instead of saying, no, I have a duty to see that my child becomes more like Christ. Oh, I'm an introvert. Okay, well, the scriptures say that your temperament has to stay the same. Because psychology does. Oh, you're an introvert. That's how you'll always be. Or you're an extrovert. That's how you'll always be. No. God says our temperament should be formed according to scripture and the pattern of Jesus Christ and the teaching of God's word. But psychology gives people an out. Like, oh, I'm a victim. I just, you know, I showed up this way. Don't ask me to change. Well, parents have a biblical duty and everyone has a personal duty to see to it that their temperament is corrected, to form our manners and habits according to Scripture. And parents have a duty to their, to the best of their ability. You can't change people, but you can use the means that God has put at your disposal to attempt that very thing. And then also to fit them for future stations in life according to the commands and counsels of Scripture, and then also to catechize and teach them our doctrinal standards. Uh, If there is a problem in the church that could disturb the peace and well-being of the church, notify the pastor or session. Don't take matters upon yourself. Seek assistance. And if it's a personal offense, of course, Matthew 18 applies. You go and you talk to the person and try to work it out. But the whole goal is the recovery of any offender, the glorification of God's name, and done in such a way as you would want it to be done to you if you were in the opposite position. That's that's the basic rule here. And then seeking to participate in any church activities that the session has approved of, Bible studies as well as worship services, for example, or this new members class, for example. And then defending the officer's good names, both while a member and after leaving. Tithing on income and any offerings on top of that. Um, bear one another's burdens among the membership, both within and without this particular church. Any believers, we want to help as much as we can. Visit those who are sick. Seek to minister to their needs under the direction of your session. Pray for one another. Refrain from idle talk and gossip. And no accusations brought until you've followed Matthew 18 and then in consultation with the session. Also the same for formal charges. Matthew 18 should be followed. Um, Any divisive issues, matters of opinion or conscience should be charitably dealt with as Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 talk about. Um, Don't criticize your officers unless you go and talk to them first. You know, we're not infallible, only God is. So you may have criticisms or complaints and that's fine. But don't go gossiping about it. Go Go to the officer and talk to them about it. And then any other issues brought to the session or pastor prior to to taking any action concerning it. Okay, so that's the directory for church membership and Christian living. It's uh, very sound in terms of the basic outlines and biblical teaching of it. 
the rub and the trouble is the actual practice of these things. They can be very good in theory, and we need to remind ourselves of the truth that God has said about them, but we also need to strive toward practicing them. Do you have any questions, Casey, about this final section here? Uh, I think it's off topic, so... Okay. Sounds good. Okay, let's close our time together in prayer.